from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 2nd. Today, why Trump's fundraising numbers keep growing, where Democrats go from here, and the challenge of sharing custody during a pandemic. This week, it's become even more clear that President Trump has no chance of overturning the result of the election. On Tuesday night, Attorney General Bill Barr came out with a big announcement. He said that the Justice Department has not found any evidence of the widespread election fraud that Trump has claimed. And in Georgia, an election official talked about how damaging these accusations of fraud have been. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. This 20-year-old contractor for a voting system company just trying to do his job. His family's getting harassed now. There's a noose out there with his name on it. It's it's not right. But despite all of this, people are still giving President Trump money. A lot of money. So since Election Day, Trump donors and supporters have been getting messages constantly on email, texts, over and over again, every day. I'm Michelle Yehili. I'm a reporter on national politics and I cover money and politics. It's been the president saying, I need you now more than ever. The election recount results were bogus, essentially questioning the integrity of the November 3rd election. And he's been asking his donors to give money towards something that he's calling an election defense fund, presumably for this fight to challenge election results, to try to overturn what happened on November 3rd. And he's been asking his supporters to donate five dollars, fifty dollars or more at a time to help finance this effort. We found that they have donated more than a hundred and seventy million dollars since election day. A hundred and seventy million dollars? And it's a huge haul. I mean, typically a losing presidential campaign after the election just kind of ramps down. You know, they're not incessantly trying to raise money for something. Typically, they're trying to just close down shop and maybe pay off some debts, and that's about it. But this is about to be one of the most successful fundraising months of the campaign. So this $170 million, what is that money actually going to? Like, if this is the Trump defense fund, what is that actually paying for? So the thing is, this election defense fund doesn't exist. If you actually read the fine print on these fundraising appeals, you start to realize that the money is going to many different accounts, but it's mainly going to this one account named Save America, which is a new leadership pack that President Trump set up just a couple weeks ago in early November. And and when you say leadership pack, what does that actually mean? So leadership pack is basically a political action committee that can raise and spend money on behalf of someone who is in office or was in office. And the purpose of this leadership pack is pretty broad, but the way it's usually used is so that the politician or the former politician can retain influence in politics. So then if most of the money that's being donated right now is going to this leadership pack, then what is the leadership pack able to use it on? So the background here is that these leadership PACs were created essentially to help lawmakers on Capitol Hill. You know, they run for office and then after two years, maybe they might 
might not run for office again or may be interested in running again later, or they may want to help their allies in their campaigns. So they could raise money through the Leadership Pack, and then they hold these fundraising events, these really exclusive high-dollar donor events and fundraisers in order to get money and then help support your friends or, you know, make sure that you are known as someone who can keep raising money, which then allows you to retain your profile on the Hill. Now, these leadership packs have become so popular that essentially every lawmaker has one. And when you're a freshman lawmaker on the Hill, you get one because everyone has one. And politicians and former politicians are now all setting up a leadership pack because that's what you do. But so if this is where all this money is being donated to, then it's not really to pay for the legal defense or to try to, in their words, like rectify the results of the election. Like this is really just for future campaigns and for like building donor relationships, like the regular campaign stuff. It has nothing to do with the with the outcome of the election. Right. So when you read the fine print, you realize that actually a very small percentage of each donation is going toward a legal fight. It's going to the actual legal account held by the Republican Party. And the vast majority of the funds are going toward this leadership pack first. And the thing about a leadership pack is that there really are not many restrictions on how you can spend money. You can't spend it on your own campaign because that's supposed to be coming out of your own campaign account, Mm. but you can spend it on helping your friends' campaigns or pretty much anything else. There's this thing called a personal use ban that is very strict and it prohibits campaign accounts from spending money on anything that's personal. Essentially, the idea is if you raise money from your donors for your campaign, you should be using their money for your campaign. Yeah, you can't just like go and use that money and and buy a car or something like that. But with the leadership pack, there is no such ban. So theoretically, you can go and buy a car. So theoretically, that could be something like a like a big party at Mar-a-Lago that this money could pay for like a huge gala that all these donors can show up to and have a good time at. What we know about the president is that he likes to host his events at his own properties. And I think we can expect him to continue doing that and to use these funds to help pay for those events. For a sitting president to be raising money toward what he plans to be doing after the election to maintain his political influence, that is unique. And the fact that he is raising so much money and depending on this army of extremely loyal repeat online donors who do respond in droves once they get these fundraising appeals, that is also very unique to the president. President Trump has had a very loyal base of online supporters who have been giving over and over again, sometimes as little as like three to five dollars at a time over four years. And he's really depending on their support now. The people that he knows are really compelled to give to him, especially during moments when they feel that the president is under attack. And they definitely feel the president is under attack right now and they want to give anything, anything they can to support. In some ways, seems like a very effective strategy. That President Trump raises his claim that the results of the election are fraudulent, even though that's not true. It gets all of his supporters riled up. They donate to this campaign fund, thinking that they're going to help him actually get a second term. But in fact, that this money can be used for anything that Trump wants going forward. We have seen this phenomenon over the past couple years, especially as online giving becomes more prevalent 
on both sides. This thing called rage giving is like the term that we're using to call it. It sounds kind of like hate watching. <laughs> exactly. Or doom scrolling or hate scrolling. Yeah. Uh, so rage giving essentially is your desire to give in a moment where you're emotionally compelled to give. Whether you're angry or you're just really moved by whatever happened. It may be while you're watching a debate or you're reading a news article or you're watching an interview and you're just so pissed off or you're so moved in any other way to give. And this is really tapping into that emotion of anger and frustration at what President Trump supporters keep being told was a rigged election, even though it's not. But I'm curious what the actual donors have to say about this. Like, if they think that their money is going towards some kind of legal defense, when in fact most of their money is going to this entirely other purpose, are they aware of that? And do they think that that's wrong? So what's interesting is that so far I'm seeing two different types of donor responses. One is the donor who like doesn't really have an idea of exactly where this money is going, is told that it's going to an election defense fund. That is what they're giving toward. And so they're just giving over and over again because that's what they think it is. And then there's another type of donor who is being told that this is for an election defense fund, really believes that there was election fraud, but also knows that this is going toward other accounts too. Like they know, they're aware that this is going toward his his leadership pack and they don't care. That's fine for them because they just fundamentally support the president and whether he wants to use it for election defense or whether he wants to use it for the leadership pack, they're fine. They just want to keep giving money so that they could help him run again in 2024 or help his friends run in 2024 or 22. They just want to support. So while President Trump and his campaign has been doing all this fundraising in the last few weeks, has that also been happening for President-elect Joe Biden? Like, is he also emailing all his supporters asking them for money? Yeah. So President-elect Joe Biden is raising money and he's kind of had to do so because he has to pay for a transition, but the transition funds have not been made available to him because the president is holding up the transition. So his fundraising appeals, you also don't expect the new president to be raising money, but he's been asking his supporters to actually help pay for the transition in the meantime, and his donors are responding. I think what all this flurry of post-election fundraising, which you don't really expect, shows you is that there is just a ton of money in politics now, and that's probably not going to go away. This is a way that donors are being trained to respond, the way that supporters are being trained to respond in order to show their support for their favorite candidate, and the laws and policies that exist help fuel that. Michelle Yehi Lee covers money and politics for The Post. Going into this election, there was a lot of confidence in the Democratic Party that not only were they going to win back the White House, but that they were going to win back the United States Senate, and pad their advantage in the House of Representatives. Of course, that did not happen. Sean Sullivan is a national political reporter. We saw House Democrats lose seats, and we saw Senate Democrats fall short in many of the battleground races they had hoped to win. 
And now, unless the Democrats can sweep two runoffs in Georgia at the beginning of January, the Republicans will control the Senate. As of now, at least nine seats in the House have flipped to Republicans. And the Democratic Party is openly divided over what went wrong. It's almost as if these two factions are sort of looking at a piece of art and having an entirely (laughs) different interpretation of it. When you talk to moderate centrist Democrats, they say, look, the problem was that our party was too often linked to some of the ideas, some of the themes on the left that most of us in the moderate wing of the party did not stand for, but a few voices on the left did, and that allowed Republicans to attack us, to exploit us, to paint us all as extremists. So that's the moderate argument. And what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about things like the Green New Deal. They're talking about things like defund the police. These are positions that on the left, some are vocally supporting, but a lot of moderates are not. So that's what moderates are saying about who is at fault in in the outcome of the election. But what are progressives saying in terms of their outlook from this? Well, progressives are saying a couple of things. They're saying, one, look, the energy in the party is with us. The future of the party is with us. The young people, the people that are going to power this party, that is our base. And that is a base that helped Joe Biden win this election. And that is a base that needs to be recognized. And when they look at the blame and the finger pointing that they are getting from moderates, they say, look, it's not because of things like defund the police. It's not like things such as Medicare for all. They they point to all the candidates who supported Medicare for all who won. And they say, look, it, it was a problem of tactics. You didn't organize effectively enough. You didn't campaign effectively enough. You didn't go online, use social media, Facebook, invest in those avenues to reach voters in non-traditional ways. That's sort of the the problem. And which view of the state of things do you think is more accurate or more borne out by the data of, of what we actually saw in some of these critical districts? Well, you know, it's hard to say for certain, and it's entirely possible that there is some degree of truth in both of these arguments. I remember covering the campaign. There were concerns all along about these Republican attacks, about these efforts to brand Democrats as socialists. A great example of that is is South Florida, where you have a lot of Cuban-American voters. Republicans saw early on that branding Democrats as socialists could be a really, really effective tactic there, even though, of course, for the most part, that was not an accurate argument. Joe Biden is not a socialist. Many of the Democrats they attacked were not socialists. And so there was a sense all along that these Democrats were worried about that. There's also another idea that that some have raised, which is that a lot of voters, this is the theory goes, you know, really did not like President Trump. They wanted to vote against him. They wanted to kick him out of office, and many of them went to the polls to do that. But a lot of those same voters were not necessarily sold on the Democratic Party message and were not ready to sort of give the keys to the car, so to speak, to the Democrats, and then ended up splitting their tickets, voting for Biden at the top of the ticket so that he could defeat President Trump, but then voting for a Republican candidate down the ballot so that Democrats wouldn't have complete control. And then, of course, that leads to the question of why they would do that. Is that because the party is too liberal or is that because uh, the party has not effectively reached out to young voters, working class voters? That's the debate that's happening in the Democratic Party. And I think it's one we're going to continue to see 
debated in the months ahead. Yeah, I I think it's interesting to think about how that logic of whether or not it was that, you know, the Democratic Party was able to be painted as super liberal or the party of socialists. Like, you know, Biden was basically either the most moderate or one of the most moderate Democratic candidates going into the presidential race. And even though he was the most moderate, he's still painted as a socialist. There's still a thought that that scared off a lot of of swing voters. And so if that's going to happen anyways, then what's the point of trying to continue to be a moderate in an attempt to appeal to more middle-of-the-road voters if, like, regardless of what you do, you're going to be painted as a socialist? That's the argument we're hearing pretty bluntly right now from a lot of liberal activists, leaders, and elected officials. They're making exactly that point. They're saying, look, they're going to tag us with this stuff no matter what we say or do. They point to somebody like Joe Biden, who, as you said, in, in the presidential primary was the opposite of Bernie Sanders in many ways. He he said he's not a socialist. He does not support Medicare for all. He did not support the Green New Deal. And yet he and others who aligned themselves with him were, were tagged this way. And so what the liberals are saying is we need to embrace our views and not be running scared from these attacks. We need to tell voters what we stand for because we can't control what the Republicans do. They're going to do that anyway. Do you buy that argument? Like, do you think that holds water in terms of what we actually saw from the outcome of this election? Well, there is one line of thinking that Joe Biden was able to rebut those attacks effectively at the top of the ticket because he is a household name. He is a brand. He's been around for decades. People know him. He's never run as a liberal. He's never run as somebody who is on the extreme wing of his party. And so there is a belief among some in the Democratic Party that he was able to rebut those attacks because of who he was, because of who Joe Biden was and is personally, and that a lot of Democrats down the ballot were not able to do that because they're not household names, because they don't have that longstanding brand. And so that, in their view, is the danger, and that is the argument for moderation. What are we seeing from Joe Biden and in terms of his cabinet choices and senior staff members and people he's bringing into his administration? To what extent does that indicate that he's going to hew toward that strategy that we can't be worrying about trying to appeal to Republicans because they're going to not work with us anyways? Yeah, it's interesting because it's a little bit of a mixed picture. We see on the one hand, he has chosen some people for his White House who are centrist, moderate folks who are not seen as, you know, the sort of liberal firebrands. But at the same time, he has chosen people who the left is excited about. Janet Yellen, for example, uh, as uh, his pick for Treasury Secretary is a person who's generated a lot of excitement on the left. Some of the economic team picks have also won a lot of applause on the left, picking John Kerry, even though John Kerry is not seen as a liberal firebrand, but picking him to sort of be the point person on climate change is something that has won a lot of plaudits on the left. The fact that he's chosen a high-profile person for that role as a sign that he's serious. So I think we'll get a better sense uh, in the months and weeks ahead. One thing that's clear is that Liberals right now are are using these cabinet nominations, these White House job appointments as real pressure points. They're waging really, really public campaigns, being very open about who they want in these positions. And when Joe Biden is picking somebody they see as insufficiently liberal, 
they're speaking out about it. They're not shy about criticizing Biden, even though they're all part of the same party. And one of the things that is so tricky for Biden in this moment in choosing his cabinet members is also the prospect that seems more likely than not that he's going to be facing a Republican Senate and that they may or may not throw some roadblocks in the way in terms of the confirmation process. And I guess I'm wondering if there is a sense so far that Biden is trying to avoid some fights in this process and how the more liberal wing of the party is viewing that there is some aversion to conflict from Biden, at least in these beginning stages. Yeah, that concern is growing, I think, in the liberal movement and has been over the past few weeks. It's a concern that's been there all along because people know Joe Biden, they see him. He's made no secrets about the fact that he thinks he can work with Republicans, that he sees bipartisanship as something that is possible, that is not just a fantasy, even though we are at a point in history right now where the two parties in the country is very, very polarized. Uh, he said something during the campaign that alarmed a lot of liberal activists. He said that, look, when Trump is gone, these Republicans, they're going to be more reasonable. We're going to be able to work with them. A lot of these liberals thought that was very naive, that was very unrealistic, and that yeah, was something that— Yeah, it's hard to that, imagine how that actually bears out in reality, especially when you think about what it was like for Obama in office. I mean, it's not like he was great with working with Republicans. And a lot of these activists point to the last few weeks and say, look, Trump has lost, and these Republicans are not abandoning him. They are standing by him even as he wages these lawsuits that are going nowhere. And so, yes, that worry does— exist. And one thing that we're hearing right now from liberals is that they want to see Joe Biden use the power of his office, use executive orders, executive actions, using that part of the presidency to pass things on climate change, to address student loan debt, because hmm. they're anticipating that Mitch McConnell, if he's still the Republican majority leader next year, is indeed going to stonewall a lot of the Democratic agenda. So it's an open question how far he is going to be willing to go. Now, we have seen already he has vowed to take steps on day one of his administration to use executive orders to reverse Trump administration policies, to make strides on other issues. So we have seen him out there say, look, I I am willing to do some of this. But in the long run, it, it is a question mark right now that I think a lot of liberal activists have. So it seems like Biden's situation right now has two objectives that are kind of in tension with each other, that he envisions a future where he would still be able to negotiate and strike deals with Republicans and to work across the aisle. But but there's also his job of trying to bring Democrats together and trying to get the more progressive wing of the party behind him. And it seems like those two things are hard to do at the same time. That's right. And and they're very hard to do at the same time. And you have to choose, you know, at the end of the day, there are going to be situations potentially where he's going to have to decide, do I want the vote of Mitt Romney on this piece of legislation or do I want the votes of Bernie Sanders? You can't have it all. And he ran a campaign that was rooted in bringing the country together. He cast himself as a uniter, somebody who could work with both sides. If he doesn't do that, there's going to be a backlash from moderate Republicans who crossed party lines and voted for him. But if he does too much of that, there's going to be a backlash 
in his base. And we're already starting to see some of that already from liberals who are saying, look, we disagreed with you on a lot of these issues, but we put our differences aside. We didn't back third party candidates the way we did in 2016. We didn't wage these verbal and visual protests this time around. We were- We deserve something for our loyalty. Right. We helped deliver this victory to you, even though we don't agree with a lot of what you say. And now it's time for you to bring our views into the fold, to represent our ideas in your presidency. Sean Sullivan is a national political reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing about co-parenting during the pandemic from audience editor Nia DeKai. I got divorced in 2011. Julia Joy is a remarried woman who lives in Boise, Idaho, and she has four kids. I just turned 49. I've thoroughly enjoyed my fabulous 40s. And she is a seasoned co-parent. No matter how mature or friendly or reasonable you are, it's still very, very hard on a family. In the past, she shared that her and her ex-husband were kind of like the poster children for co-parenting. We had parent friends at school who didn't know we were divorced. They would show up to the kids' events. They'd sit together at the kids' sports events. And so, you know, now things are a little more interesting. The pandemic has definitely changed some of the ways that she's been able to co-parent. I was more quickly ready to get back to normal especially on behalf of my children. I'm still the mom. And so even though we have 50-50 custody, I really felt the burden of the homeschooling more. And I can't explain it, but so much of their extracurricular lives, so much of their emotional lives, so much of their social lives fall on my shoulders. In March... Pretty much everywhere went into lockdown. And so Julia and her ex-husband agreed that outside of the family, that they weren't going to really socialize. As things kind of moved on, the kids now have a lot more freedom at Julia's house. She's even started uh, socializing the kids within like a pod, which is like a group of people that agree to follow the same kind of protocol. So the kids have now started socializing, but their father is still kind of functioning like he did in March, which has presented some disagreements in what the kids are allowed to do, whereas their father is a lot more strict. Julia has had some issues with kind of getting through to the ex-husband about what the kids are allowed to do. The pandemic then throws kind of like this curveball because now you're not only worried about the health of your children, but also yours. And so I spoke to this attorney, Evelyn Mitchell, who kind of shared that she's encouraging 
parents to work it out outside of the courts because they're so inundated with all of these requests about visitation and custody because a lot of parents are raising these concerns about their kids possibly being in danger or exposing them to the virus. So the pandemic has just added a level of stress and more considerations. It's definitely challenging co-parents to try to figure this out outside of the court system. Nia Dekai is an audience editor and writer for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you have recently discovered this podcast, we'd love if you'd leave us a review on your podcast app. That's what one new listener named River Cruiser did a couple weeks ago. They left a five-star rating for Post Reports along with a glowing review that said, quote, just found this, it popped up on an email, and I thought it was really well done. Instead of listening to classic rock tunes in the morning with coffee, I will now start with Post Reports. River Cruiser, putting us up there with Led Zeppelin is a big deal, so we are very honored. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 